Hello and welcome to the Recovering from Religion podcast. Our mission here is to offer hope, healing, and support to those struggling with issues of doubt and non-belief. What follows is the audio from selected videos posted on Recovering from Religion's YouTube channel. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. It's such an honor to be able to introduce our guest tonight. Dr. Andy Thompson is a psychiatrist at the University of Virginia Student Health Services. The 9-11 attacks triggered an interest in suicide terrorism, which led to the discovery of an unappreciated world of research into how and why human minds generate religious beliefs. Andy has written Why We Believe in God, with the S in parentheses, a concise guide to the science of faith which brings that world to anyone interested. So without further ado, please join me in giving a warm welcome to our guest, Dr. Andy Thompson. Dr. Thompson? Thank you. On the dogmas of religion, as distinguished from moral principles, all mankind from the beginning of the world to the present day have been fighting, quarreling, burning, and torturing one another over abstractions unintelligible to themselves and to all others, and absolutely beyond the comprehension of the human mind. Thomas Jefferson wrote those words in 1816. And the essence of my talk tonight is this. If you were to run into Mr. Jefferson next week, you could say to him, no, Mr. President, religion is no longer beyond the comprehension of the human mind. In point of fact, we are on the verge of a comprehensive cognitive neuroscience of religious belief. We now in the 21st century are the first generations in the history of the world to understand how and why human minds generate religious beliefs, why we're vulnerable to uh, subscribe to them, why we share them. And we are in that position, Mr. President, because when you made those comments in 1816, there was a seven-year-old boy in England, Charles Darwin, who would grow up to give us the only workable explanation we have for the design and variety of all life on Earth and the only workable explanation we have for the design and architecture of the human mind. And it's those pieces of the human mind, everyday, ordinary, but still special in a way, everyday ordinary cognitions that go into uh, building religious beliefs. And what I'm going to do tonight uh, are a couple of things. One, we're gonna start just with a, a summary of evolution by natural selection, do a little bit about human evolution, give you a base of this, and then we will look at some of the cognitive mechanisms for religious beliefs and then we will switch to ritual, where our ancestors uh, actually in, literally stumbled into a way of harnessing neurotransmitters to sort of supercharge these religious beliefs. Darwin wrote his Origin of the Species in 1859. And the next to the last paragraph said this, psychology will be based on a new foundation. Darwin understood the implications of his discovery but it took about 150 years before they really started to be applied to psychology and the cognitive neurosciences starting in the 1990s. And there's been an explosion, evolutionary psychology, Darwinian psychiatry, evolutionary anthropology. And it's out of those discoveries that we have the understanding of religious belief. This is the uh, typical understanding of um, evolution that it, works at the level of an individual. But if you take Darwin's idea and you combine it with Watson and Crick, genetics, you get the modern Darwinian synthesis. And evolution works not at the level of the individual, but at the level of the gene. And if you step back for a moment, of course that makes sense because what's the fundamental unit of life? It's DNA, it's the gene. So that's where evolution works. And that leads to this. This is the best statement I've seen of the modern Darwinian synthesis. 
So every organism is an integrated collection of problem-solving devices, adaptations, shaped by natural selection over evolutionary time to promote in some specific way the survival of the genes that built those um, adaptations. So my heart solves the problem of pumping blood. My lungs solve the problem of extracting oxygen from the air. Hemoglobin solves the problem of transporting it. At every single level of biological inquiry, evolution by natural selection. Now, this is also an important statement because this is a, a, a summary of the human mind. The, the, the mind is what the brain does, and the mind-brain is this organized, integrated collection of problem-solving devices shaped by natural selection over evolutionary time to promote the survival of the genes that built those adaptations. So you're looking at me right now. I'm an upside-down, two-dimensional image on your retina. Myriad adaptations turn it into the three-dimensional view that you have. What we're going to be talking about are social adaptations. You don't know it, but looking at my face, you have very specific adaptations that tell you something about my personality. Actually, looking at my eyes, you have specific adaptations that tell you something about what my intentions are, what my uh, desires are. And, and these are some of the discoveries, the, these everyday ordinary, but in another way, extraordinary adaptations that we use, that you're using right now. These things are utilized to generate religious belief. Another way of thinking about it is that the mind brain is like the Apollo spacecraft. What's the Apollo spacecraft? It's this compact array of engineering devices that are solving a constant stream of problems, only some of which become conscious to the astronaut. Most of it goes on unconsciously, automatically. That's the way your mind brain works. Very specific adaptations. And we're going to talk about some of them to give you an idea of how uh, it goes into shaping religious beliefs. So that's the modern Darwinian synthesis adaptations, the cognitions that go into religious beliefs, human evolution, right? And uh, our minds have a great deal of difficulty uh, getting our. our our, our minds around the time sequences involved. The main thing to keep in mind is that we are risen apes, not fallen angels. We are African apes. We are the last surviving hominids. And what's interesting is that Darwin knew this, but in the origin of the species, he only made the, the sort of great uninvited but present guest in the origin of the species, human beings. And this is the only, he said, light will be thrown on the origins of man. He knew we were apes. He knew we probably evolved in Africa. He waited until 1870 to publish his ideas on that. But he knew at the time that he wrote Origins. And um, we are all Africans. And if you look at on the east coast of Africa, the Great Rift Valley uh, runs from Somalia all the way uh, to Mozambique. You want to think of this as the birth canal of the human species. You know, this is where Homo sapiens uh, probably evolved. Um, that again, we are all Africans. Again, let me just give you some illustration of the time sequences involved here, because the adaptations we're talking about uh, arose in a hunter-gatherer environment on the plains of Africa long ago. Uh, these are not uh, adaptations that arose in 19th century Vienna, right? Now, just let's take today, 24 hours, okay? We're going to take 24 hours uh, today. Midnight last night, our genus Homo shows up, okay? Homo habilis, Homo erectus. Now, th there'd already been a couple of million years of Lucy and Australopithecines, right? You know, and we carry a lot of Lucy in us. But I'm just going to start last uh, midnight, Homo sapiens, I mean, Homo erectus, Homo habilis show up. Now take every hour and turn it into 100,000 years. So the 24 hours of today is 2.4 million years, right? So our genus shows up at midnight last night at about 6 a.m. this morning. Some of them started to leave Africa 
about lunchtime. Some of them made it into what is present day Europe. At six o'clock tonight, Homo heidelbergensis shows up, our most immediate ancestor. At six o'clock tonight, at nine o'clock, some of Homo heidelbergensis left Africa, became Neanderthals in Europe. At 10 o'clock tonight, we start to show up, Homo sapiens. And probably about 11.20 tonight, fully formed, anatomically, behaviorally modern humans um, show up. And uh, that's us. And uh, like 11.20 tonight. It is not until six minutes before midnight, about 10,000 years ago, that we start to settle into agricultural communities in the Near East. And we settled into those agricultural communities to brew beer. No joke. Um, and we may owe civilization to beer. I'll get to that later. But as you can see, for the vast majority of our evolution, we're living in small kin-based groups in Africa, right? And then we leave Africa and we uh, spread around the world and we are the last surviving hominids, right? By 20, 25,000 years ago, they think the last Neanderthals uh, died out and we are the last surviving hominids, why? And one of the reasons may be because of our phenomenal cognition, the pieces of that cognition go into religious belief. So always keep in mind that the evolutionary past frames the experienced present. In our modern skull is a stone age brain, a hunter gatherer brain that was shaped on the savannas of Africa. And, and there's a huge mismatch. Uh, I don't know if you can read the captions, uh, you want to watch the hunting channel or the gathering channel. Um, but that is the, the fund, our fundamental psychology. And how did, how did we evolve uh, these big brains? On the left is Homo erectus. On your left, on the right is us, Homo sapiens. And I want you to pay particular attention to the frontal areas of the, of the skull. We have large frontal lobes. And in evolutionary time, we developed of these big brains pretty quickly. Uh, Lucy was probably 400 centimeters, uh, cubic centimeters. I think uh, Homo uh, habilis maybe 800. You know, we're about 1400 cubic centimeters and a lot of it is frontal lobe. Now we had conquered the physical environment. Remember we left Africa, you know, a million and a half years ago. Okay, so we had conquered the physical environment. So what was the environment that was impinging on us that led natural selection to develop these extraordinary brains, particularly the frontal lobe. And the environment that shaped that selection was each other, right? And our brain is a social brain. And it, a lot of it is in our frontal lobes. And it is those social adaptations that go into religion. Now, the other thing is that we achieve something that the insects achieve something called eusociality. And one of the reasons we may be the last surviving hominid is because we are a eusocial species. We're an, what's called an ultra cooperative species, an ultra social species. And what constitutes um, eusociality? These are some of the characteristics. Multi-generational care of the young. A lot of you I'm sure out there are grandparents and you are involved with your grandchildren. Cooperative care of the young. A chimpanzee mother won't let her sister hold her infant. Um, I've got a one-year-old grandson. You want to hold him? Please, be my guest. We take that for granted, but it is actually very unusual in the animal kingdom, this cooperative care of the young. And, and that, and it's, and it's, I'm going to show you, it's out of that parent, particularly mother-child bond that religion arises. We have division of labor. Think of all the different uh, jobs that the people here tonight do, defense of local communes of our group and self-sacrifice. We're an extraordinarily altruistic species. And part of the ultra cooperation and the ultra sociality is to generate and encourage reciprocal altruism. And again, you, you have to keep in mind that all this evolved in the small hunter-gatherer tribes in Africa. Life was a, a continuous nonstop camping trip with close relatives. 
And I think the other thing that's important in this is to keep in mind that, again, we are all Africans. All 7 billion people on the earth today are the descendants of somewhere between 600 and 2,000 individuals who survived a climate catastrophe about 70,000 years ago. So, you know, put away your racial, religious, ethnic differences. Uh, underneath our skins, we are all Africans. So the next time you have a discussion with a white nationalist, remind him or her, probably a him, remind him that um, he's an African, uh, an African ape, actually. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they'll love it, but that is the scientific fact, that it is out of those uh, mechanisms that arose in Africa, in our primates, our Australopithecines, and particularly our homo uh, ancestors. Modern Darwinian synthesis, human evolution. Let's get to the meat of things. So what are, what compromise religious ideas? Religious ideas are a byproduct of cognitive mechanisms that were originally designed for other purposes. Now, a lot of you might say, well, byproduct sounds kind of weak. I mean, how could something as powerful as religion be a byproduct, okay? Reading and writing. I don't think anybody here would say that reading and writing hasn't been a powerful cultural invention. We don't have reading and writing adaptations in our brain. What do we have? We have vision. That's an adaptation. We have fine motor skills, adaptation. We have language, which is an adaptation. And it combines for the cultural creation of reading and writing, which I don't think anybody here would disagree that that has had enormous impact. Similarly, religion is a byproduct of, just like reading and writing, it's a, it's a cultural byproduct of these mechanisms that come together for a, a variety of reasons. So it's a byproduct of these mechanisms, and it's a byproduct in particular of our social mechanisms, our ability to imagine social worlds. And they are always, religions are always human concepts with just slight alterations that create powerful stimuli. A other way of looking at this is that the psychology of religion is the same as the psychology of junk food. You understand the psychology of junk food, you understand religion. And, and people feel like I'm insulting religion. No, I mean, I like at times to insult religion, but this is actually just a fact, right? What is junk food? Okay, junk food is a cultural creation that arises from some of our adaptations, but comes back at us with super normal stimuli. So I have an adaptation for cravings of sweets, but the original sweets were ripe fruit. Junk food gives me brownies and Coca-Cola, a super normal stimulus, and, and you know my pleasure centers light up. I don't know about you, but in the middle of the night, you know, if I know downstairs there's a peach or a brownie, I'm not getting out of bed for the peach, right? It's the brownie, and, and because that's a super normal stimuli that attracts me. Um, we all have adaptations for lean game meat, crucial source of protein. Junk food gives us, you know, high fat and tons of it. And remember, in the ancestral environment, starvation was always right around the corner. We, we had adaptations to eat as much as we could, and junk food just gives it to us in space. And what I want you to see is that this is what religion does. Religion has components that arise from our everyday, ordinary, and extraordinary um, adaptations that make us human and come back at us with these super normal stimuli. I hope you see that the, the fundamental psychology of religion is the same mechanisms as the fundamental psychology of junk food. Now, what are some of those mechanisms? Now, what does a two-year-old do when he or she is distressed? A two-year-old comes, you know, stumbling over towards you and reaches up and wants you to pick them up. And, and you do as a parent, you reach down and you pick them up. This is the basic attachment mechanism. And this is old. This is in mammals. It, it's part of our mammalian inherited, uh, heritage. Probably goes back 65 million years. 
the primate attachment mechanism, you know, probably at least 35 million years ago. It is an extraordinarily powerful mechanism that we have. And this is one of the things that religion hijacks and it is absolutely central to understanding our religion. When we're distressed, we look for a caretaker. We look for an attachment figure. If you're interested in this, this was mapped out originally by American psychologist, Mary Ainsworth, British psychiatrist, John Bowlby. If you look in the Atlantic Magazine, just put in on becoming attached, Robert Karen. If you can't find the reference, email me, I'll send it to you. This was an article, uh, it's from 1990, but the beauty of the article is that both of them were still alive in their interviews. And it's just marvelous. And if you want to learn about the attachment system, this is a place to start. One of the things that religion is particularly good at hijacking is the earliest attachment mechanism. If you step back and think about it, all infants at the time that they're born have mechanisms that natural selection has shaped for them to just assume that there is a caretaker out there to latch on to and to, and to nurture from, or to, to, to feed, to grab onto and to feed, that that's just basic wiring. And also when distressed, to cry. So the, these early neonatal attachment mechanisms, and they're present in apes, turtles, uh, all vertebrates. I mean, that you're born with actually complicated neural hardware that just is based on the fact that there's going to be an attachment, there's going to be a parent out there for you to grab onto and to, and to get food. And if you don't, you die. And also, so, you know, we put up with, you know, our, our parents are less than perfect. And so they drop us or they injure us or at times they don't quite get it right. Doesn't matter. That mechanism is there regardless of what's thrown at it to, to grab on and to nurture. The basic neonatal attachment mechanism. And you can you may be saying, you know, why is Andy going through this? All right. I guess this is something that religion really utilizes is that early neural hardware, that early neonatal infant attachment mechanism. Think about when you rock a child, that vestibular movement, right? That's soothing, that's part of soothing. Touch, uh, rocking, that, that motion. Uh, is soothing an infant, is caretaking. It's not just nursing them in food. It's the touch, it's the warmth, it's the movement, right? Think of a lot of the movement in religions. Think of the men at the Wailing Wall creating that ancient vestibular, uh, neonatal, and infant uh, movement. What's communion? Communion is feeding young children who can't feed themselves, right? Here, you know, Children are being fed, but that same mechanism is used when an adult goes for communion. You know, a parent is, is feeding a child who can't feed themselves. That, that mechanism is there and gets utilized, right? Now, think of your hymns. Think of your favorite hymns. Go back and look at the hymns or sing them to yourself. Most of the imagery in most hymns evokes that early childhood attachment. Amazing grace. I was uh, lost and now I'm found. I was blind and now I see. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. It was grace my fears relieved. Swing low, sweet chariot. I mean, just look at any of the majority of hymns. Onward Christian soldiers, those kind of hymns are actually minority. But in hymns, in, in, in Obviously, I know the Christian religion best, but if you look at all religions, a lot of the music evokes this early infantile uh, childhood. Uh, infantile sounds derogatory. It's not. We're talking about that developmental period and the mechanisms true to that period. Those don't go away. Those are sitting on our brain. Religion uses them. You play, you play amazing. You want to see me cry? Just play Amazing Grace with the bagpipes you know, the pipes will start pouring. You know, it's just there. Why? Okay, that mechanism is getting stirred. What is crying? Crying is an ancient childhood mechanism that we have that other mammals and primates don't. It's a hard to fake, honest signal of distress. 
And that ability stays with us. And, and we obviously use it uh, as adults. If I'm distressed, I can signal people by tears. But that's an ancient childhood, early childhood attachment mechanism that gets uh, triggered. Um, look at scripture and look at scripture through the lens, put the lens of early childhood attachment. And, and you'll see that religion evokes the idea that religion or a God is a parent and a parent who's a super normal parent, a parent who's better than your own parent. Um, and it's there in scripture. Just another example. But again, think of your, you know, if you go back and think of your favorite scriptures or your favorite hymns, I will guarantee you it, it evokes this early childhood attachment. If you're interested in this, um, obviously I'm biased towards my own little book, but if you've only got one book in you to read on this subject, you want to look at John Wathe's book, uh, The Illusion of God's Presence. It is absolutely, I think, the best book out there that summarizes all the cognitive mechanisms, but where he goes, where nobody else does it, he maps out better than anybody the sort of combination of these early childhood attachment mechanisms and, and the social moral mechanisms. It's just a, it's a marvelous book. And, and if you, as I said, if you got one book in you on this subject, look at John's book. All right, so now what about the afterlife? How do we understand the, the belief in the afterlife? Right? This is a burial site in, of our species in modern day Israel, 90,000 years old. It's an adolescent male. And you can see that horns of an animal were put with him. And so there's clearly a belief of an afterlife there. It looks like Neanderthals had belief in afterlife. So why would we believe, why would we be vulnerable to believing in afterlife? And uh, this is the modern version of it. Pop-ups in the cloud now. Where does it come from? Now this, it comes from a phenomenon called decoupled cognition. And it's a fancy word for something that is every day. We can decouple our cognition from time and place and mind and body. What about time and place? Example was, you remember I said, if you run into Mr. Jefferson next week. Now, Nobody, I think, batted an eye. Um, we can easily imagine next week talking to Mr. Jefferson. Very easy to do. And all of you, as you've been listening to me, I know there have been moments where you stop and think of a conversation you have to have with somebody tomorrow or next week, or you remember a conversation from last week or something. In the present moment, you can decouple from this moment and this place and go elsewhere and have a complicated social interaction with another person. It's crucial to our cognition. I mean, you know, there's a patient I'm worried about that I have to see tomorrow. I can right now, while I'm talking to you, I can think about it, right? And, it, and it, we just take it for granted, but it's unusual. And it, it's crucial to being able to imagine an afterlife occupied by other people. Now, what about the decoupled cognition of mind and body? That's also crucial. Now, imagine that this is your brain, right? This is, this is your brain right here. And I'm gonna uh, do a little surgery. This is half your brain. And uh, imagine for a moment that this is the frontal lobe right here. Frontal lobe, this is the back of your head, right? So frontal lobe, back of your head. Now, <clears throat> here's why I'm going through this. Because in the in the midline of your brain, in the frontal lobe, is where you are aware of your own thoughts and feelings and the thoughts and feelings of others. If I wonder what Gail is thinking right now, I'm using this middle part of my uh, frontal lobe. If I'm thinking about my own thinking, I'm using the middle part right here in the front of my frontal lobe. Okay? Now, however, if I'm thinking about Gail's left hand, which was on her chin, I'm processing that. Um, I'm actually processing that on the exterior of my brain. 
If I'm thinking about my own left hand, I'm processing that on the exterior of my brain, the outer part, right? So you can see that in our basic neural architecture, processing thoughts and feelings, my own and other people's, is in one part of my brain and in a completely different part is my processing my own body and other people's bodies. All right, Andy, why is this important? Here's why it's important. So that the brain represents minds and bodies in completely separate neural circuits. So we immediately experience and believe mind and bodies are discrete categories, despite the evidence to the contrary. Mind is what the brain does. My mind is in my brain, part of my brain. My mind is my brain. But yet I experience my mind as separate from my body. And I experience Gail's mind separate from her body. So if I had to have Gail in front of me to think about what she's thinking, that would be a real problem, right? But um, I could think about uh, what Gail's going to think next week. I can think about right now um, what Gail might have thought about, uh, you know, last week. Um, and and so. It's an extraordinary piece of cognitive software, but it's crucial to our everyday life. But so you, I hope you can see that belief in some form of life that's separate from the body, it's just the default setting of the human mind. And, and what I'm hoping you're starting to see is that religion, as crazy as it can be at times, is actually always just one small step from everyday uh, human cognition. They are extraordinary when you look at them, but they're everyday cognition. There's nothing in religion that doesn't come from something that you are using tonight as you listen to me and as you talk to others. Uh, it's just everyday cognitions that, boom, come together in this extraordinary uh, and unfortunate cultural byproduct. Uh, decoupled cognition. Another thing about religion is something called minimally counterintuitive worlds. And again, a fancy name for a very simple thing. If I tell you that this tree will do your laundry, fix your computer, file your taxes, you're not gonna believe me, right? Because there's simply too many violations of treeness, right? They're just, it's like nonsensical. But if I tell you that that tree will listen to your prayers on a night of a full moon, you'll be vulnerable to believe me. I mean, maybe not this crowd, but, but most of us are, are vulnerable to, to believe it because there's just one violation and it's a violation that includes a human mental state, something important to emotions or social interaction. Everything else you know about trees are still there. And there's just this one little violation including a mental state. This, these are called counter, minimally counterintuitive worlds, a fancy name for that, that there's a, a one or two small violations. Um, they involve human mental states. Everything else you know about the, the subject is uh, you know, intact. And, and these are attention arresting and memorable. Uh, a, you know, a, an aspect of our psychology. Um, and so this is your basic supernatural template. There's always going to be a counterintuitive physical property. God is everywhere, but God is still a person. And everything you know about personhood is still intact. Everyday, ordinary human stuff. But okay, but he's everywhere. A little violation of physics. A counterintuitive biology, right? The virgin birth, uh, uh, the virgin Mary. Right? There's one little twist. She's still a version that gave birth, but everything else you know about young womanhood is still intact. There's a counterintuitive psychology, right? God can um, you know, know what you're thinking, but it's a human trait and it has to do with something important socially. If, if, the, if the violation was God knows where every car is parked in the whole world at this moment, you're going to see that as kind of nonsensical. But you know, God knows your thoughts, right? 
But if God knows your thoughts, why do you have to pray to him? Okay, because he's still a person that you got to talk to, right? And then everything about personhood and social interaction is there. But God knows your thoughts. So minimally counterintuitive worlds, some of the, the basis for supernatural belief. All right. So <clears throat> what I what I hope I, I showed you, and, and I, I've just given you a taste, there's probably about 20, 20 adaptions that routinely cognitive adaptions that go into the structure of religious belief, right? Um, and that, that makes it easy for us to generate religious beliefs. Um, you know, I hope you can see that ancestor worship is just, you know, one step away from what I do. I mean, my parents are deceased. I catch myself talking to them all the time. Um, but that's, you know, just one ancestor worship, God's all of religion, even supernatural stuff. It's just one slight step removed from everyday ordinary human cognition. But when it comes together, it can be very powerful because it comes back at us in these super normal stimuli that you know hijack the systems in our brain. Now, um, let's go to the last part of the uh, talk here, which is um, a ritual and, and how this really gets uh, supercharged. We are uh, both selfish creatures but extraordinary altruistic and ultra cooperative. Rituals uh, cement and supercharge religious beliefs. These are the uh, Kung San in Africa. And uh, what I want to show you is that the earliest religion we probably know, um, the Kung San in Africa, the Andaman Islanders, which are in the Indian Ocean and basically were untouched uh, until the 19th century, and the Aborigines have almost an identical religion. And uh, why? And if you're, I would look at Nicholas Wade's book, The Faith Instinct. Um, there are things in there I disagree with about group selection, but he maps out beautifully that these three uh, groups are the, are the descendants, the direct descendants of Homo sapiens who arose in Africa, who left Africa and swept to the West, and that they are almost uh, direct, uh, un, you know, unobscured descendants of um, our original ancestors. And what's interesting is that they have almost the identical um, religion. And so Wade argues that this is a window into the original religion, which was in Africa. And as I hope to show you, echoes of that, pieces of that are in every modern day religion. So the original religion was basically song and dance. There were no priests, no ecclesiastical hierarchy. It was the whole community. One of the things it do, did was to uh, reduce the social hierarchies and rank, create uh, equality, and it was centered on rhythmic physical activity. Why? And it's because our ancestors stumbled into harnessing uh, basic neurotransmitters that do powerful things. Serotonin, um, if you do uh, aerobic exercise or dancing, uh, you boost serotonin. This is what Prozac boosts. Serotonin um, gets us outwardly focused. Serotonin moderates our self-esteem. High serotonin increases our self-esteem, gets us focused outwards away from inner rumination. Norepinephrine, arousing. Norepinephrine also marks things as memorable. Dopamine, everybody thinks of dopamine as the pleasure chemical. It is, but it's far more. It motivates, uh, it's motivation, it's attention, it's memory. When you remember something, it's dopamine and norepinephrine. And, and these get boosted with physical activity. Um, oxytocin, all of you know about oxytocin, the trust hormone, uh, enhances trust. Um, that gets boosted with physical activity, in particular touch. And endorphins, and we tend to think of endorphins as the runner's high or pain, but endorphins are, are involved in uh, bonding. Music is clearly involved in courtship, 
But again, Darwin knew that it, it triggered strong feelings. And when you make music, not listening to music, but when you make music, you are generating endorphins. And endorphins are social bonding and social trust. This is a great experiment. So we could take uh, uh, Medellin and we could put her on a rowing machine and have her row and measure. We could keep her at a fixed work output and have her on a rowing machine, measure the work output, keep it stable. And then we can put a blood pressure cuff on her and pump it up hard and we can measure her pain threshold. So we got work output and the pain threshold. Then we put Medellin on a rowing machine with other people in rowing machines uh, in front and to her side and they row synchronously. No touch, nothing. All they're doing is rowing synchronously, same work output, but then when we measure Medellin's uh, pain threshold, it's much greater. She doesn't feel the pain as easily. Nothing is different. All she was doing was symmetrical movement with other people. No touching, not singing, just work output, symmetrical physical movement with other people. And we boosted her endorphins, which are social trust. Touch. If I, I saw somebody kiss Gail goodnight or goodbye or something when he walked out, I assume that's somebody important in her life, all right? So if, if that person were to come back in the room and just put his hand on Gail's shoulder, that's all, just put a hand on her shoulder, she gets, she gets a blast of uh, endorphins and oxytocin just out of touch, you know, bonding. Here's where it really gets wild, all right? We're gonna put Gail into an imaging machine and we're gonna show her a threat scenario and the amygdala, the fear center of her brain is gonna light up, it's gonna explode, right? Then we're gonna have Gail hold the hand of a stranger, show her a threat scenario and her amygdala still lights up, but not as much. Just holding the hand of a stranger. Then we're going to put her in the in the, the scanning machine. We're going to have her hold the hand of the guy that was kissing her goodbye, right? And and somebody I assume she knows and is connected to. We're going to have her hold his hand. We're going to show her a threat scenario. Her amygdala is barely going to light up. Barely. All she's doing is holding the hand of her partner, right? Here's what even gets wilder. The degree to which Gail's amygdala does not light up is directly proportional to her rating of the quality of the relationship, right? So you can warn him, he better be nice to you, right? Because, you know, but, it just, but, but the idea here is that touch is incredibly powerful and it, it triggers these endorphins, which are bonding hormones. What is religion? It comes from religare, which means to bind. Right, and and religion, uh, it, it's one of its main functions is to bind and to bind non-kin. So touch. We also have mirror neurons, which some of you may have heard about. Now, <clears throat> if I see Gail raise her right hand, the neurons in my brain that raise my right hand fire. Now my frontal lobes are intact, so I can suppress from raising my right hand. But if she raises her right hand, same neurons fire in my brain, right? If um, I see uh, Medellin start to cry, um, the same neurons that had me cry are gonna start to, 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 to you know, do it. And so even if you're standing outside of a religious ritual thinking this is nonsense, it's still affecting you. One of my favorite examples, I don't know how many of you saw the Bill Clinton give the nominating speech to Barack Obama in 2012. But if you remember, Clinton gives this just unbelievable speech. Um, and then uh, Obama comes walking out on the stage, crowd goes wild. Clinton goes over and, and sort of bows uh, to Obama. And then the two men embrace and Obama is just stroking Clinton's back like crazy. And you can see a tear coming out of Clinton's eye. Very powerful moment, if you remember it. 
what most people don't know is up until just a brief while before that, these two men hated each other, just couldn't stand each other, right? And, and brokering a peace deal was like the Middle East. And they, they got them together and they gave, you know, they settled their differences momentarily. Clinton gives this speech, Obama comes out, is, is you know, doing this and you can see. Now, I'm watching this and I'm starting to cry, right? Those are mirror neurons. And what, what Obama and Clinton are doing, unbeknownst to them, they're hugging and they're you know, stroking each other. They're just getting a shower of endorphins and oxytocin, right? And, um, and, and they're bonding and it probably helped repair their relationship. Here's what I'd like you to do. I mean, I do this with audiences, but we can't do this tonight. But sometime, I'm gonna make you self-conscious here, but what I'd like you to do is sometime at home, if you've got one or two other people, do the following thing, right? What I want you to do is just um, think about how you're feeling. Just how you're feeling, number one. Number two, I want you to think about somebody you care about who you're in conflict with, right? And, and just think about how you feel about that person, somebody you love, but somebody you're in conflict with, they're tough conflicts right now. Just how do you feel about that person? That's number two. Number three is I want you to take the skin on the back of your hand and really crank down on it and make it hurt as much as possible. Just really crank down on it, right? Those three things, how you feel, how you feel about somebody you love, you're in conflict with, and induce some pain. And you think, God, you know, what is this guy doing? Okay, here, here's the reason. Once you do that, then I want you to stand with those people. If it's just one person, fine. It's got to be at least one person. If it's a couple people, put your arm around them. Start swaying back and forth, okay? Touch, symmetrical movement, right? Back and forth, right? And then belt out a couple verses of happy birthday. And then after you do that and you get over your self-consciousness, what I'd like you to do is then pinch your hand and see where your pain threshold is. I'll guarantee you, your pain threshold has gone way up. You, you really have difficulty getting the same level of pain, number one. Then think about how you feel about the person you're in conflict with. See if you notice any change. And then just think about your own feeling state, right? That's, that's, that's very simple. And, and we're talking about two verses of happy birthday. We're not talking about six or eight hours of doing this, which is what the basic religion was and what many religions still are. Think of camp meetings, revival meetings, right? And, you know, if like me, intellectually, you don't like what, you know, the meaning of the lyrics of Amazing Grace are, if you really don't like Amazing Grace, sing Amazing Grace see what happens, right? Because the point is that I can, you can see just in that little experiment, there's just a couple of minutes, we can harness those neurotransmitters and change how you feel about yourself, how you feel about others. And we can show from that pain threshold that you've already generated significant endorphins. So what do rituals do? Well, again, rituals resolve social problems. You know, the freeloader in the group will stand out. We have ritual, rituals are useful in, you know, non-serious punishment of group members. Rituals that are hard to fake, honest signal of commitment to the group. Uh, rituals are important for courtship. You know, I don't know about you all, but some of my early attractions and girlfriends were at the, you know, Sunday school, right? And sing it in the choir. They resolve social problems. Uh, they ease communal conflict. They're crucial for mobilizing defensive territories. It's a way of signaling the quality and identity of the group. Think of the New Zealand rugby team when they come out and do their war dance. I don't know about you all, but even though I know it's just a rugby game, it's intimidating, right? It's designed that way. You know, rituals have powerful social effects. And one of the most important is that it prepares men for war. If you believe in me, divide into sex and kill and hurt as many from the other sex as you possibly can. 
but uh, and think of all the rituals we do uh, before wars but think of the, the rituals before football games right i mean those are you know think about when the team huddles and they do all this stuff and they're touching and they're chanting and and they're getting ready for a ritualized kind of combat which is you know american football all right final point here is important the standard view was that we were in hunter-gatherer societies, and then we settled into agriculture, and that's when religion arose. I hope I'm starting to show you that's not true. We can see deep into historical time before written history, and it looks like our ancestors as hunter-gatherers had rituals and religious rituals, you know, the Aborigines, the dream time. In Turkey, in 1996, a place called Gobekli Tepe was discovered, and it upended archaeology because Gobekli Tepe was clearly a religious site while we were still hunter-gatherers in that part of Asia. And so even as hunter-gatherers, you know, after we left Africa, here's evidence still living a hunter-gatherer lifestyle where we would gather in, for, for religious rituals, and part of it was probably to bring non-kin groups together. And this is the part I like. So they discovered at Gebekli Tepe evidence where um, they brewed beer. The original beer came from barley and the original bread was probably not for eating, but was to store the barley for making beer. Now, why? Because alcohol, when we drink alcohol, one of the things that we stimulate are endorphins, new opioid receptors. And so one of the reasons we drink alcohol is that it makes it easier to bond with people, easier to bond with non-kin. And so there's evidence of alcohol. And again, it looks like one of the reasons we may have settled into agricultural communities is not to grow food, but to grow better barley for beer. We may owe civilization to beer. They had uh, dancing, right? This is from Gobekli Tepe. And part of why I like this is I like to tease my Baptist friends who don't drink. And I say, are you aware that, you know, by not drinking, you're being anti-religious? But I, again, I hope you see what goes into religious ritual. So let me finish up here. The next time you see something like this, I want you to look at it differently. I want you to look at this a number of ways. This is a dance, right? These men praying, it's a dance. They're moving symmetrically. They're touching each other. They are chanting. All that's endorphins, symmetrical movement, touching, chanting. They are, and they're doing it for long periods of time. I mean, they're, they're, they're generating huge amounts of endorphins and bonding. And I also want you to see that even here in modern Islam, you see the echoes of that hunter-gatherer religion from uh, Africa, potentially hundreds of thousands, uh, maybe millions of years old. Even Buddhism, uh, we think of Buddhism as monks in caves. Buddhism has beautiful rituals, beautiful dance rituals. And again, it's symmetrical movement, it's chanting. It's again, um, it's a dance and it's the echoes of uh, that original religion. Think again of the men at the uh, Wailing Wall, you know, chanting, uh, symmetrical movement. You know, it's all there. Again, what looks different comes down to these common denominators that are echoes of our deep history. Think of your Christianity, right? And, uh, you know, the singing of hymns, you know, you know, uh, you know, even in, uh, you know, I was Protestant, uh, Presbyterian, you know, God's frozen people. But even, even there, you, you, you know, you would occasionally turn around and shake people's hands, you know. Uh, but there's touch and there's singing. And, uh, um, and, and also, uh, I think what's interesting is that the history is that pews were put in churches not until like the 15th century or something like that, and it was to stop the dancing. So in conclusion, I wish you could make up your mind, Mr. Dickens, was it the best of times or was it the worst of times? It certainly couldn't have been both. 
And if you remember the, from the tale of two cities, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And uh, that's what I would like to argue, that it is uh, the best of times and it's still uh, the worst of times. It's the worst of times in that all you gotta do is pick up a newspaper, turn on the television and the news, and you will see something about religious conflict somewhere, uh, violent religious conflict. And I'd submit to you that religion remains one of the main barriers to a global civil society. So I would suggest to you, and I don't think it's you know, hard for this audience that uh, uh, you know, religion is still uh, uh, unfortunately something that is terribly destructive. So it's the worst of times. But if I have done my work well tonight, I hope I have shown you that it is also the best of times. It is the best of times in that we are the first generation in the history of the world to now understand how and why human minds generate religious beliefs, right? We really are well into a solid cognitive neuroscience of religious belief. You know, we, it's like we have the fundamental structure of DNA. We've got the double helix and now it's just filling in the rest. So I would submit to you, it is also the best of times. And it basically leads us to three questions, right? The three questions are, what am I gonna do with this knowledge? I have it, what are my responsibilities? What am I going to do with this knowledge? Number one. Number two, what are you going to do with this knowledge? Number three, third question is, what are we as scientifically literate, educated, democratic societies in the 21st century? What are we going to do with this scientific knowledge for future generations? Thank you very much. My goodness, Dr. Thompson, what an impactful message this has been. I have thoroughly enjoyed every minute of this. It's uh, your questions that I was gonna kind of feed them back to you at the end of it is what do you do with this information? I'm going to have to reflect on this. It, it uh, Someone commented in the chat as you were speaking, it gives us maybe a little more compassion for understanding why people do what they do. But more than that, it gives us somewhere to go with this as we rebuild our communities without religion, as we see the importance in, in the chat also, there's a lot of conversation about coming together at music festivals and events. Yeah. Yeah, that we can replicate some of this and try Absolutely. to and understand the importance of this. Wow, I've just been I've just been blown away. I think I'm supposed to be answering questions, but I'm so distracted. Thank you, thank you. I I second those remarks. That's wonderful. And uh, we do have some questions. I'll um, Medellin has been uh, busy behind the scenes gathering questions that were in the chat. So Medellin, I'll turn it over to you for a little bit of that. Uh, yes, thank you. And thank you, Dr. Thompson. That was wonderful. It is a lot to mull over and I'm looking forward to watching the recording of this back. Um, we have a few questions. The first one is, excuse me, what evolutionary basis do you see for the pursuit and use of altered states in the practice of religion? And they elaborated a bit saying religious traditions, they use hallucinogenic drugs, perhaps even in Christianity, the use of speaking in tongues. Well, there's a couple of things. Using plant toxins uh, is something that goes way back. And we use plant toxins actually uh, to uh, counter parasites. And anybody who's interested in this, look up Edward Hagen. Um, and he's an anthropologist at Washington State. Go to his website. And he's got a paper that's got a, a title called uh, plant pesticides and neurotoxins. It, uh, unfortunately, it's not the best of titles, but it is a fantastic paper that uh, traces how we originally used these plant toxins to control infections, particularly parasitic worms. And then also, obviously, they create altered mind states. And so I think our ancestors, you know, uh, built them into their religious rituals. Um, and, and the, uh, you know, a lot of the original religious rituals in those hunter-gatherer tribes was that singing and dancing all night. 
until you almost got into an altered state. And some think the original religion was song, dance, and trance. Um, and so they use the, the, the drugs to create altered trance states. Um, you know, but that, that's my understanding of it, but I'm not an expert on it. There, there are others, and, and I would take a look at Ed's paper to get the, the basis of the use of plant toxins. And he discusses the hallucinogens in that paper. Great, thank you. And I can keep going to the next question is, how can we break the fear that hell holds us from childhood indoctrination? I guess that hell holds on us from childhood indoctrination. Breaking the fear of hell is the question. The fear, that's, that's um, you know, that's, that's a tough one um, because, um, you know, that's why I think religion now is really a form of child abuse because it, it, uh, it, it induces fear, fear of hell, fear of punishment, but that's, you know, again, I, I, I would, again, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, John Wadhe's book, I mean, he, he argues that basically uh, what that is, is, is creating a super normal, uh, moral, punitive force that it, it goes too far because the, the point of that moral punitive force is again, trying to force cooperation in groups that are not necessarily kin. Um, and, and so it's, uh, you know, it, it's extreme, but we're vulnerable to it. All of us are, you know, all of us, you know, are afraid of, of parental rejection, parental, you know, all, all of us live in fear of that because in, in ancestral environments, that was deadly. I mean, you know, you're, you're thrown out of the home, you're dead. I mean, so we're exquisitely sensitive to uh, parental punitive attitudes or, or anger. I mean, why do children stay with abusive parents? Because ancestrally, I mean, you know, you, you leave them, you're dead. No, and, and so it, it's easily inculcated and, and, and helping people overcome that and, and you know, helping children is, is a difficult task. Thank you for that. I see one here about dance and music. Is there any discussion of visual art with these concepts that you study? No, uh, but it's, a, it, it's an important part. And, and what I didn't mention, which again, <laughs> I'm going to come back to it, is John's book, is that if you look at, if you look at uh, particularly the, iconog the iconograph, uh, particularly in the Christian religion, it is all mother-child stuff. I mean, the vast majority of it is, you know, uh, uh, mother-child, the Virgin Mary, the infant Jesus, uh, even, you know, the Pieta, the, the mother Mary with her dead son. Um, so it, in, in the visual if you look at the visuals in the Christian religion, the stained glass windows, it's, you know, it's parent-child or group, group bonding. You know, the, those seem to be the main elements, social bonding, reciprocal altruism, and that parent-infant bond. The, but I think it's, a, let me, let me go, I mean, I think it's a good question because I don't know people who've studied, because, you know, there's obviously prohibitions against iconography, iconograph in, in Islam. And we're coming up on the last couple of questions now, Dr. Thompson. All right, so there was one about sex not being a religious ritual anymore, and a question within that question as to whether it ever was. And it says to be, it seems for sex as a religious ritual to be supernaturally connected uh, for people to do. I don't know if your research, you've come across anything like that. Well, I think the Baptists got hold of it, um, uh, but... Um, <laughs> But, well, but again, it, the, uh, there is a lot of, uh, there are obviously a lot of uh, sexual themes in religion. And, and the, the reason for that is that adult sexuality, uh, you have to remember that evolution has to take what already is and build on top of it. Um, and so adult sexuality it contains aspects of the attachment uh, mechanism. It, it, it involves uh, uh, adult sexuality has to do with mutual nurturing. Um, there's, uh, you know, usually when we come up with pet names for our significant others, they're, they're sort of child, 
childlike names often. Um, they're, um, you know, what's, what shares song? I got you, babe. Um, um, but, there, but there's, uh, again, uh, I'm going to go back, uh, look at uh, John Waddy's book, because he does a lovely job of, of showing how sexuality is in religion, because sexuality builds on all these from early uh, infant attachment mechanisms, you know, all the way through. And, and a, lot of, a lot of attachment is sensual, and sensual easily uh, merges with uh, sex. Um, you know, obviously, sex has been part of many religions and religious rituals, um, and and it's it, and again, when you read John's book, you see, oh, it's just you know, it, it's put together uh, beautifully. Um, I I'll ask one more here, and then we'll go on to the next uh, section. Gil will announce our next speaker. So one last in this section is, what do you think might cause an individual person to have more? of a difficult time committing to a lack of belief even after they have rationalized it? Because uh, uh, I think it, 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 also, it, often, mean, it often means giving up uh, attachments. Um, one's religion, one is attached to. There's, there's a bond to that religion. Number one, usually that bond is other people. I'm, I live near Jerry Falwell's empire, and I see students from Lynchburg and Liberty University. And um, when they give up their religion, they're often thrown out of the families. And so, giving up their religion is uh, is incredibly hard. Or there's a fear of losing their families. Um, but I think there's also there's also an attachment to to religion. Um, you know, I. I, you know, I, I miss, I had wonderful times when I was young singing in the church choir. It was where I could get away from home and I was with my buddies and we were sitting in the back and, you know, we could kibitz and then we sang this great music and we kibitzed and, you know, it's, I, I, there, there are days that I miss it. I get that. Thanks so much. Thanks again for your time and the talk and these answers. Recovering from Religion is a nonprofit organization whose mission it is to provide hope, healing, and support to those struggling with issues of doubt and non-belief. Hope, Healing, and Support is waiting for you on our website, recoveringfromreligion.org. There you can speak or chat with a trained agent who will work with you through your struggles and doubts or to help find resources that may work for you. You can also find local Recovering from Religion support groups in your area for the long-term recovery work. Resources specifically curated for those struggling with doubts, disbelief, and trauma can also be found on the RFR website. To connect with a secular therapist in your area, go to seculartherapy.org and create an account. If you'd like to support the work that RFR does, you can donate or sign up as a volunteer on the Recovering from Religion website. It's also a big help subscribing to the RFR YouTube channel, our blog, or following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Questions, comments, and suggestions can be emailed to us at rfrx at recoveringfromreligion.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll be with us next time on the Recovering From Religion podcast.